Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mark Twain's Letters from Hawaii. All books that Uvula Audio presents are in the public domain. Volume 4 Letter 10 Honolulu, April, 1866 The Whaling Trade The whaling trade of the North Seas, which is by no means insignificant, centers in Honolulu. Short of this, the town would die. Its businessmen would leave and its real estate would become valueless, at least as city property. Though Honolulu might flourish afterwards as a fine sugar plantation, the soil being rich and scarcely needing irrigation. The San Francisco Chamber of Commerce might do worse than to make an effort to divert whaling trade to her city. Honolulu fits out and provisions a majority out of the 96 whalers this year and receives a very respectable amount of money for it. Last year, she performed this service for 51 vessels, so you can see how the trade is increasing. Sailors always spend all their money before they leave port. Last year, they spent $150,000 here, and will doubtless spend double as much when this year's fleet returns. It's said that in the palmy days of whaling 15 or 20 years ago, they squandered as high as a million and a half in this port at the end of a successful voyage. There were vast fleets of whale ships fitted out here and provisioned and recruited in a single year in those days, and everything promises that the whaling interest will now move steadily forward under the impetus of the long-continued high rates of oil and bone until it eclipses in importance any degree it ever attained in former times. In chartering vessels to carry home the catch of whalers, in equipping them, in supplying and recruiting them, and in relieving their crews of their money at the end of the season, San Francisco might manage to get several hundred thousand dollars a year out of the whaling trade if she could get it into her hands, or a million or so should whaling again reach its former high prosperity. It costs from $1,000 all the way up to $20,000 to provision and fit a whaler here for her voyage. The average is about $6,000 to each vessel. Of the 96 ships which go north from here this season, only 49 will fit here. The other 47, being the increase in tonnage and on their first voyage, were equipped at home. The home equipment is generally for two full seasons, so Honolulu will not get the job of supplying these new ships for a couple of years yet. But after that, she will have their whole custom, unless perhaps San Francisco can make a satisfactory bid for the whaling trade in the meantime. There were as many as 400 whalers in the North Seas at one time in the palmy days of the trade, two-thirds of which were supplied in this market, and paid Honolulu over a million for doing it, even at the moderate prices of those days. Concerning oil and bone. Oil is valuable, but whale bone is more so. Sperm whales are chiefly caught at the line, or westward as they term it. They do not yield any bone, but the oil is worth from 75 to 100% more than any other at the present time. Humpbacks and devilfish are caught on the coast of California between seasons. The yield is called coast oil, and they yield no bone. Okotsk whales yield about 20% less bone than the Arctic whale, and is worth 4 to 5 cents a pound less than Arctic. The catch is a term which signifies the fruits of a voyage. The average catch for three years past of ships sailing out of this port was about 650 barrels of oil a year to each vessel about 8,000 pounds of bone as well. Consular Prices 
The consular prices at which crews of whalers were paid off here in the fall of 1865 were as follows. Whale oil, 64 cents a gallon. Coast oil, 60 cents. Sperm oil, 92 cents. Okosk bone, 74 cents a pound. Arctic, 78 cents in gold. These prices were not half what the articles were worth in the eastern markets, in currency. Past and present. The palmy days of whaling, the phrase which one hears here as often as he hears in California of matters which transpired in the early days there, or in Washoe of the flush times of 63, refers to a period some 15 years gone by. But the palmy days in a modified form lasted clear up to 1853. Let me give you a few figures. The fleet brought to this port in 1853 oil, 4 million gallons, bone, 2,020,264 pounds. Then, for several years, the yield gradually fell away, till in 1858 the figures were oil, considerably under 3 million gallons, bone, 1,614,710 pounds. Five years after, in 1863, in the midst of the war, the catch had fallen away down to oil, 732,031 gallons, bone, 337, 43 pounds. Still lower in 1864, oil, 642,362 gallons, and bone, 339,331 pounds. But in 1865, in spite of the pirate Shenandoah, the trade almost held its own. It had struck bottom, as we say in Washoe, and was ready to start up again. The yield was oil, 621,434 gallons, and bone, 337,394 pounds. These last figures were for 67 ships, all told, 51 of which went from here. We may look for better results this season, with 96 vessels in the fleet, and next year, the palmy days may come again, for everything that can be turned into a whale ship by any process known to art is being brought up or chartered in the east now for this trade, and in due time the icy solitudes of the North Seas will once more become populous with the winged servants of commerce. What commands the whaler patronage? I have talked whaler talk and read whaling statistics and asked questions about the whaling interest every now and then for two or three weeks, and have discovered it was easy to get plausible information concerning every point connected with this commerce, save one, and that was, why is it that this remote port in a foreign country is made the rendezvous of the whaling fleet instead of the seemingly more eligible one in San Francisco on our own soil? This was a stunner. Most people would venture a chance shot at one portion of the mystery, but no one was willing to attempt its entire solution. The truth seems to be that there is no main, central, or prominent reason for it, but it is made up of a considerable bundle of reasons, neither of which is especially important when taken by themselves. San Francisco versus Honolulu Number 1. See how the case stands. In Honolulu, it is not a holiday job to ship a crew. Natives compromise it chiefly, and the government frowns upon their employment as sailors because it causes the agricultural interests to suffer for want of labor. And you see, the plantations build up the whole kingdom, 
while the whaling trade only builds up Honolulu and one or two smaller seaports. So the government first made the whalers enter into bonds of $100 for each man, that is to ensure the return of that man to the kingdom. The bond was increased until now it is $300, and shipping taxes of various kinds have been instituted, which amount altogether to about $600 for each man, which must be paid in gold to the government when the man ships. Ships usually go out under bonds of $3,000 to $10,000 for the return of their crews. The bond system, which was intended to keep the Kanakas all at home, don't work. The whalers still are obliged to take natives or go without crews. So urged by the agricultural interest, an attempt will be made in the legislature, which convenes in two weeks hence, to pass a bill entirely forbidding the shipping of natives. If this is accomplished, it will give San Francisco one good chance to get the whaling patronage, and it is better and more permanent and safer thing to have than rich but ephemeral mines. In favor of San Francisco, it's acknowledged that as soon as it became the established whaling rendezvous, whaling crews would repair to it, and men could be shipped at small expense and without bonds. Number two, it is 2,100 miles from San Francisco to Honolulu, so that these whalers, by coming here, do 4,200 miles more sailing than they need to do and waste about a month and a half of time doing it. Number three, they cannot insure directly here. The policies must go all the way to the east, and then maybe the insurance office may approve them, and maybe it may reject them, and perchance the ship may be lost in the meantime. In San Francisco, insurance could be directly affected. Number four, here the whole whaling fleet nearly is paid off at once and in gold. And of course, exchange goes up to a high figure. Started at 5 or 6 last fall and went up to 10% premium. It stands at 2.5 even now, when there is no special call for money. In San Francisco, it need never go to 2.5 at any time. Whaleman's bills are the best paper in the country. Being always sure and prompt, scarcely a single failure to pay them is recorded. Number 5. Facilities for transshipment of oil eastward would be much greater in San Francisco than here. Number six, facilities for chartering, equipping, provisioning, and recruiting whalers would be much greater and cheaper in San Francisco than here. Number seven, here it takes a mild eternity for a whaler or his agent to communicate with a ship owner at home. In San Francisco, your steamers, overland stages, and telegraphs would bring them face to face. I think I have stated the case fairly. In facilities for shipping crews, in economy of time and distance of travel of the voyage, in facilities for insuring, in cheapness of money, in facilities for transshipping cargoes, ditto ditto for chartering and equipping vessels, and ditto ditto for communicating with owners, Honolulu cannot begin to compete with San Francisco. Then why does the whaling fleet rendezvous in a remote port in a foreign land instead of a convenient one at home. An attempt at a solution. I got the question answered by piecemeal by many different people, and I will jot down the several items here. They say it is hard to get crews in San Francisco, but they confess that this would not be the case if that city became the established rendezvous. They say that men can run away so easily there and put the ship in for their home bills, etc., but that they can't get off the islands here. 
They say the ship is preyed upon by everybody and fleeced for everything from spun yarn up to salt beef. They say their ships are worn out by bullying in the harbor there, but the harbor is smooth and roomy here. And they say finally, and then the old sea dogs gnash their teeth and swear till the air turns blue around them that there's more land sharks, that is lawyers, in Frisco than there's fiddlers in hell, and that you'll get pulled before your anchor's down. If there is a main central count in the indictment against San Francisco, that is it. A whaler can be snatched up or pulled by his men and the land sharks and hauled into court in San Francisco with the utmost facility, but they cannot touch him here. The lawyer who took charge of a sailor's complaint against his captain might as well emigrate. He would practice no more in Honolulu. True, when a case is so flagrant it cannot possibly be overlooked, a sort of trial is sometimes had, but it never amounts to much. The above are the whaling captain's arguments, or were in the first place, but from their mouths they have gone into everybody else's, and belong to nobody in particular now. Then there are other arguments which you hear oftener from other people than from the whalers themselves. For example, several people have explained about it this way. In San Francisco, the agent transacts the captain's business exactly as it's done here, and then brings in a bill item by item for commissions, a bill that any man can understand in a minute, and it looks expensive. But here, the agent, with fine sagacity, charges no commissions, at least they do not appear to do that on the surface. They are faithfully wrung into the general bill in a sort of debtor-to-sundries fashion, and nobody notices it, and consequently nobody grumbles. Another powerful argument may be stated thus, A whaleman don't amount to much in San Francisco, but here he's the biggest frog in the pond. Up there the agent lets him dance attendance until more important business is attended to and then goes out with him and assists him in just such of his concerns as absolutely require assistance, and then leaves him to paddle his own canoe with the remainder. But here, the agent welcomes the old salt like a long-lost brother, and makes him feel that he's a man of consequence. And so he is, and should be treated in San Francisco. And the agent attends closely to all the whaler's business here, of every kind whatever, if it's desired, and thus the captain's stay in port is a complete holiday. A Suggestion If I were going to advise San Franciscans as to the best strategy to employ in order to secure the whaling trade, I would say, cripple your facilities for pulling sea captains on every pretense that sailors can trump up, and show the whaler a little more consideration when he's in port. All other objections will die of themselves. A Step Made a nucleus is already formed up there. Swift and Allen have opened a branch of their new Bedford house in San Francisco, and their ships, they have eight at sea now, will rendezvous there hereafter. They are going to add several vessels to their fleet this season. Sixteen whalers and possibly many more will rendezvous at San Francisco this year. Those captains who have tried that port during the past two years are satisfied with it, all but one or two who have been pulled. Mark Twain. Letter 11. Honolulu, 1866. Paradise and the Polly. Joke. I have ridden up the handsome Nuanu Valley and noted the mausoleum of the departed kings of Hawaii by the wayside, admired the neat residences surrounded by beautiful gardens that border the turnpike, 
stood at last after six miles of travel on the famous Polly, the divide we would call it, and looked down the precipice of six or eight hundred feet over which old Kamehameha I drove the army of King of Oahu three-quarters of a century ago, and gazed upward at the sharp peak close at my left, springing several hundred feet above my head like a colossal church spire, stood there and saw the sun go down the little plain below and the sea that bordered it become shrouded in thick darkness, and then saw the full moon rise up and touch the tops of the billows, skipping over the gloomy valley, and paint the upper third of the high peak as white as silver, and heard the ladies say, Oh, beautiful, and such a strong contrast. I heard the gentleman remark, By George, talk about scenery. How's that? It was all very well, but the same place in daylight does not make so fine a picture in the Kalihi Valley. All citizens talk about the Pali. All strangers visit it the first thing. All scribblers write about it, but nobody talks about or writes about or visits the Pali's charming neighbor, the Kalihi Valley. I think it was a fortunate accident that led me to stumble into this enchanted ground. Another Paradise For a mile or two we followed a trail that branched off from the terminus of the turnpike that leads past the government prison, and bending close around the rocky point of a foothill. We found ourselves fairly in the valley, and the panorama began to move. After a while the trail took the course of a brook that came down the center of the narrowing canyon and followed it faithfully throughout its eccentric windings. On either side, the ground rose gradually for a short distance, and then came the mountain barriers, densely wooded precipices on the right and left that towered hundreds of feet above us, and up which one might climb about as easily as he could walk up the side of a house. It was a novel sort of scenery, those mountain walls, face around and look straight across at one of them, and sometimes it presented a bold square front with small inclination out of the perpendicular. Move a little and look back, and it was full of sharp ridges, bright with sunlight and deep with shady clefts between, and what had before seemed a smooth boulder set in among thick shrubbery on the face of the wall was now a bare rampart of stone that projected far out from the mass of green foliage and was sharply defined against the sky as if it had been built of solid masonry by the hand of man. Ahead, the mountains looked portly, swollen if you please, and were marked all over up and down, diagonally and crosswise, by sharp ribs that reminded one of the fantastic ridges that wind builds of drifting snow on a plain. Sometimes those ridges were drawn all about the upper quarter of a mountain, checking it off in velvety green squares and diamonds and triangles, some beaming with sunlight and others softly shaded. The whole upper part of the mountain, looking something like a vast green veil thrown over some object that had a good many edges and quarters to it, then a sort of irregular eaves all around, and from this the main body of the mountain swept down, with a slight curve outward to the valley below. All over these highlands the forest trees grew so thickly that, even close at hand, they seemed like solid banks of foliage. These trees were principally of two kinds, the koa and the kakui, the one with a very light green leaf and the other with a dark green. Occasionally there were broad alternate belts of each extending diagonally from the mountain's bases to their summits, and here and there in the midst of the dark green were great patches of the bright-colored leaves 
so that to look down at the valley along the undulating front of the barrier of the peaks, the effect was as if the sun were streaming down upon it through breaks and rifts in the clouds, lighting up belts at intervals all along and leaving those intervening darkened by shadows of the clouds. And yet there was not a shred of cloud in the whole firmament. It was very soft and dreamy and beautiful. And following down the two tall ridges that wall the valley in, we saw them terminate at last in two bold black headlands that came together like a V across this gate that ran a narrow zone of the most brilliant light green tint, the shoal water of the distant seas between reef and shore. And beyond this, the somber blue of the deeper water that stretched off to the horizon. The very picture of the lights and shadows on the wooded mountains, the strong, dark outlines of the gate, and the bright green water and the belt of blue beyond was one replete with charming contrasts and beautiful effects, a revelation of fairyland itself. The mountain stream beside us, brawling over its rocky bed, leapt over a miniature precipice occasionally, and then reposed for a season in a limpid pool at her base, reflecting the dank and dripping vines and ferns that clung to the wall and protruded in bunches and festoons through breaks in the sparkling cascade. On the gentle rising ground above us were shady groves of forest trees, the koa, the breadfruit, the lauhala, the orange, lime, kui, and many others, and, handsomest of all, the ohia, with its feathery tufts of splendid vermilion-tinted blossoms, a coloring so vivid as to be almost painful to the eye. Large tracks were covered with the howl bushes, whose sheltering foliage was so thick as to be almost impervious to rain. It is spotted all over with rich yellow flower, shaped something like a teacup, and sometimes it's further embellished by innumerable white bell-shaped blossoms that grow upon a running vine with a name unknown to me. Here and there were wide crops of bushes completely overgrown and hidden beneath the glossy green leaves of another species of vine, and so dense was this covering that it would hardly be possible for a bird to fly through it. Then there were open spaces well carpeted with grass and sylvan avenues that ran hither and thither till they lost themselves among the trees. In one open spot, a vine of the species I last mentioned had taken possession of two dead stumps, and around them and about them and swung out from their tops and twined to meet tendrils together in a faultless arch. Man with all his art could not have improved its symmetry. Verily, with its rank luxuriance of vines and blossoms, its groves of forest trees, its shady nooks and grassy lawns, its crystal brook and its wild and beautiful mountain scenery, with that charming far-off glimpse of the sea, Kalihi is the Valley of Enchantment. Sam Brannan's Palace While I am on the subject of scenery, I might as well speak of Sam Brannan's Palace, or the Bungalow as it's popularly called, Years ago it was built and handsomely furnished by Shalaber, now of San Francisco, at a cost of between thirty to $40,000, and in the day of its glory must have considerably outshone its regal neighbor, the Palace of the King. It was a large mansion with compact walls of coral, dimensions say 60 or 70 feet of front and 80 feet deep, perhaps including the ample veranda or portico in front. This portico was supported by six or eight tall fluted Corinthian columns, some three feet in diameter. 
A dozen coral steps led up to the portico from the ground, and these extended the whole length of the front. There were four rooms on the main floor, some 24 feet square each, and besides a room of smaller dimensions. When its white paint was new, this must have been a very stately edifice. But finally it passed into Brandon's hands for the sum of some $30,000. Never mind the particulars of the transaction. And it has been going to decay for the past ten years. It has arrived there now, and it is the completest ruin I have ever seen. One or two of the pillars have fallen and lie like grand Theban ruins diagonally across the wide portico. Part of the roof of the portico has caved in, and a huge gridiron of plasterless lathing droops from above and threatens the heads of the apostrophizing stranger. The windows are dirty, and some of them are broken. The shutters are unhinged. The elegant doors are marred and splintered. Within, the floors are strewn with debris from the shattered ceilings, weeds grown in damp mold and in obscure corners. Lizards peep curiously out from unsuspected hiding places and then scurry along the walls and disappear into gaping crevices. The summer breeze sighs fitfully through the desolate chambers, and the unforbidden sun looks down through many a liberal vent in the roof and ceiling. The spacious grounds without are rank with weeds, and the fences are crazy with age and chronic debility. No more complete and picturesque ruin than the bungalow exists in the new world or the old. It is, perhaps, the most discouraged-looking pile the sun visits on his daily round, and the sorrowful expression of its deserted halls, its fallen columns, and its decayed magnificence that seems to proclaim in the homely phrase of California that it has got enough pie. Thomas Jefferson John Quincy Adams of San Francisco, agent for the State Agricultural Society of California, and agent of pretty much all the other institutions of the kind in the world, including the Paris Exhibition, who has traveled all over these islands during the past eight months and gathered more information, collected more silkworms and flowers and seeds and done more work, and stayed longer in people's houses, an uninvited guest, and got more terrific hints and had a rougher time generally on an imperceptible income than any other man the century has produced, is Sam Brannan's trusted agent to put the bungalow in elegant repair and drawn him for $5,000 for the purpose. It is not possible for me to say when the work will be commenced or who will take the daring contract, but I can say that so small a sum as $5,000 expended on the bungalow would only spoil it as an attractive ruin without making it amount to much as a human habitation. Let it alone, Brannon, and give your widely known and much-discussed agent another job. The King's Palace the King's Palace stands not very far from the melancholy bungalow, and the center of grounds extensive enough to accommodate a village. The place is surrounded by neat and substantial coral walks, but the gates pertaining to them are out of repair, and so was the soldier who admitted us, or at any rate his uniform was. He was an exception, however, for the native soldiers usually keep their uniforms in good order. The palace is a large, roomy frame building and was very well furnished once though now some of the appurtenances have lost some of their elegance. But the king don't care, I suppose, as he spends nearly all his time at his modest country residence at Waikiki. A large apartment in the center of the building serves as the royal council chamber. The walls are hung with life-size portraits of various European monarchs sent hither as tokens of that cousinly regard which exists between all kings, 
at least on paper. To the right is the reception room or hall of audience, and to the left are the library and a sort of ante-room or private audience chamber. In one of these are life-size portraits of old Kamehameha the Great and one or two queens and princes. The old warhorse had a dark brown, broad, and beardless face with native intelligence apparent in it and something of a crafty expression about the eye. Hair white with age and cropped short. In the picture, he's clad in a white shirt, long red vest, and with the famous feather war cloak all over it. We were permitted to examine the original cloak. It is very ample in its dimensions and is made entirely of the small, bright, yellow feathers of the man of war or the tropic bird, closely woven into a strong, coarse netting of grass by a process which promises shortly to become a lost art, inasmuch as only one native, and he is an old man, is left who understands it in its highest elegance. These feathers are rare and costly because each bird has but two of them, one under each wing, and the birds are not plenty. It required several generations to collect the materials and manufacture this cloak, and had the work been performed in the U.S. under our fine army contract system, it would have cost the government more millions of dollars than I can estimate without a large arithmetic and blackboard. In old times, when a king put on this gorgeous feather war cloak, it meant trouble. Some other king and his subjects were going to catch it. We were shown other war cloaks, made of yellow feathers, striped and barred with broad banks of red ones, fine specimens of barbaric splendor. The broken spear of a terrible chief who flourished 700 years ago, according to the tradition, was also brought out from among the sacred relics of a former age and displayed. It is said that this chieftain stood seven feet high without his boots. He was permanently without them and was able to snake an enemy out of the ranks with his spear at a distance of 40 to 60 or even 100 feet, and the spear of hard, heavy native wood was once 30 feet long. The name of this pagan hero is sounded no more from the trumpet of fame. His bones lie, none knows where, and the record of his gallant deeds is lost. But he was a brick. We may all depend upon that. How the wood of the weapon has managed to survive seven centuries of decay, though, is a question calculated to worry the antiquaries. But it is sunrise now, and time for honest people to begin to turn in. Mark Twain Letter 12 Honolulu, May 23, 1866 The Hawaiian Legislature I've been reporting the Hawaiian Legislature all day. This is my first visit to the capital. I expected to be present on the 25th of April and see the king open his parliament in state and hear his speech. But I was in Maui then, and legislatures had no charm for me. The government of the Hawaiian kingdom is composed of three estates. The king, the nobles, and the commons or representatives. The nobles are members of the legislature by right of their nobility, by blood if you please and hold that position for life. They hold the right to sit at any rate, though that right is not complete until they are formally commissioned as legislators by the king. Prince William, who is 31 years of age, was only so commissioned two years ago and is now occupying a seat in the parliament for the first time. The king's ministers belong to the legislature by virtue of their office. Formerly, the legislative assembly consisted of a house of nobles and a house of representatives and worked separately but now both estates sit and vote together. 
The object of the change was to strengthen the hands of the nobles by giving them a chance to overawe the commons, the latter being able to outvote the former by about three to one, and it works well. The handful of nobles and ministers being backed by the king and acting as his mouthpieces outweigh the common multitude on the other side of the house and carry things pretty much their own way. It is well enough, for even if the representatives were to assert their strength and override the nobles and pass a law which did not suit the king, his majesty would veto the measure and that would be the end of it, for there is no passing a bill over his veto. Once, when the legislative bodies were separate and the representatives did not act to suit the late king, Kamehameha IV, he took Cromwell's course and prorogued the parliament instanter and sent the members about their business. When the present king called a convention a year or two ago to frame a new constitution, he wanted a property qualification to vote incorporated. Universal suffrage was a rule before, and desired other amendments which the convention refused to sanction. He dismissed them at once and fixed the Constitution up to suit himself, ratified it, and is now the fundamental law of the land, although it has never been formally ratified and accepted by the people or the legislature. He took back a good deal of power which his predecessors had surrendered to the people, abolished the universal suffrage clause, and denied the privilege of voting to all save such as were possessed of $100 worth of real estate or had an income of $75 a year. And if my opinion were asked, I would say he did a wise thing in the last-name matter. The king is invested with very great power, but he is a man of good sense and excellent education, and has an extended knowledge of business, which he acquired through long and arduous training as Minister of the Interior under the late king, and therefore he uses his vast authority wisely and well. The Capital, an American Sovereign Snubbed the legislature meets in the Supreme Courtroom, an apartment which is larger, lighter, and better fitted and furnished than any courtroom in San Francisco. A railing across the center separates the legislatures from the visitors. When I got to the main entrance of the building and was about to march boldly in, I found myself confronted by a large placard upon which was printed, No admittance by this entrance except to members of the legislature and foreign officials. It shocked my Republican notions somewhat, but I pocketed the insinuation that I was not high-toned enough to go in the front door and went around and entered meekly at the back one. If ever I come to these islands again, I will come as the Duke of San Jose and put on as many frills as the best of them. The King's Father I found the legislature to consist of a half-dozen white men and some thirty or forty natives. It was a dark assemblage. The nobles and ministers, about a dozen of them altogether, occupied the extreme left of the hall, with David Kalakaua, the king's chamberlain, and Prince William at the head. The president of the assembly, His Royal Highness M. Kekuanoa, and the vice president Rhodes sat in the pulpit, if I may term it so. The president is the king's father. He is an erect, strongly built, massively featured, white-haired, Swarthy old gentleman of eighty years of age or thereabouts. He was simply but well-dressed in a blue cloth coat and white vest and white pantaloons without spot, dust, or blemish upon them. He bears himself with a calm, stately dignity and is a man of noble presence. He was a young man, a distinguished warrior, under that terrific old fighter, Kamehameha I, more than half a century ago, and I could not help saying to myself, 
This man, naked as the day he was born, and war club and spear in hand, has charged at the head of a horde of savages against other hordes of savages far back in the past, and reveled in slaughter and carnage. He has worshipped wooden images on bended knee. He has seen hundreds of his race offered up in heathen temples as sacrifices to hideous idols, at a time when no missionary's foot had ever pressed this soil, and he had never heard of the white man's God. He has believed his enemy could secretly pray him to death. He has seen the day in his childhood when it was a crime punishable by death for a man to eat with his wife or for a plebeian to let his shadow fall upon the king. And now look at him, an educated Christian, neatly and handsomely dressed, a high-minded, elegant gentleman, a traveler in some degree and one who has been the honored guest of royalty in Europe, a man practiced in holding the reins of an enlightened government and well-versed in the politics of his country and, in general, practical information. Look at him, sitting there over the deliberations of a legislative body among whom are white men, a grave, dignified, statesmanlike personage, as seemingly natural and fitted to the palace as if he'd been born in it and had never been out of it in his lifetime. Lord, how the experiences of this old man's strange eventful life must shame the cheap inventions of romance. Kekuanoa is not of moral blood. He derives his princely rank from his wife, who was the daughter of Kamehameha the Great. Under other monarchies, the male line takes precedence of the female in tracing genealogies, but here the opposite is the case. The female line takes precedence. Their reason for this is exceedingly sensible, and I recommend it to the aristocracy of Europe. They say it's easy to know who a man's mother was, but, etc., etc. A Comprehensive Slur The mental caliber of the Legislative Assembly is up to the average of such bodies the world over, and I wish it were a compliment to say that, but it is hardly so. I have seen a number of legislatures, and there was a comfortable majority in each of them that knew just about enough to come in when it rained. And that was all. Few men of first-class ability can afford to let their affairs go to ruin while they fool away their time in legislatures for months on stretch. Few such men care a straw for the small beer distinction one is able to achieve in such a place. But your chattering, one-horse village lawyer likes it, and your solemn ass from the cow counties who don't know the Constitution from the Lord's Prayer enjoys it, and these you will always find in the assembly. The one gabble, gabble, gabbling, threadbare platitudes and give me liberty or give me death bunkum from morning till night. And the other asleep with his slab-soled brogan set up like a couple of gravestones on top of his desk. Among the commons in this legislature are a number of Kanakas with shrewd, intelligent faces and a gift for gab that is appalling. The nobles are able, educated, fine-looking men who do not talk often, and when they do, they generally say something, a remark which will not apply to all their white associates in the same house. If I were not ashamed to digress so often, I would like to expatiate a little upon the noticeable fact that the nobility of this land, as a general thing, are distinguishable from the common herd by their large stature and commanding presence, and also set forth the theories in vogue for accounting for it. But for the present, I will just pass the subject by.
in session, Bill Ragsdale. At 11 a.m., His Royal Highness the President called the House to order. The roll call was dispensed with, for some reason or other, and the chaplain, a venerable-looking white man, offered up a prayer in the native tongue. I must say, this is a curious language, with its numerous vowels and its entire absence of hissing sounds, and it fell very softly and musically from his lips. A white chief clerk read the journal of the preceding day's proceedings in English, and then handed the document to Bill Ragsdale, a half-white, half-white, half-Kanaka, who translated and clattered it off in Kanaka with a volubility that was calculated to make a slow-spoken man like me distressingly nervous. Bill Ragsdale stands up in front of the speaker's pulpit with his back against it and fastens his quick black eye upon any member who rises, lets him say a half-dozen sentences, and then interrupts him and repeats his speech in a loud, rapid voice, turning every Kanaka speech into English and every English sound into Kanaka with a readiness and felicity of language that are remarkable, and waits for another installment of talk from the member's lips and goes on with his translation as before. His tongue is in constant motion from eleven in the forenoon till four in the afternoon, and why it does not wear out is the affair of providence, not mine. There is a spice of deviltry in the fellow's nature, and it crops out every now and then when he is translating the speeches of slow old Kanakas who do not understand English. Without departing from the spirit of a member's remarks, he will, with apparent unconsciousness, drop in a little voluntary contribution occasionally in the way of a word or two that will make the gravest speech utterly ridiculous. He is careful not to venture upon such experiments, though, with remarks of persons able to detect him. I noticed when he translated for His Excellency David Kalakaua, who is an accomplished English scholar, he asked, Did I translate correctly, Your Excellency? Or something to that effect. The rascal. Familiar Characteristics This legislature is like all other legislatures. A wooden head gets up and proposes an utterly absurd something or other, and he and a half dozen other wooden heads discuss it with windy vehemence for an hour, the remainder of the house sitting in silent patience the while, and then a sensible man, a man of weight, a big gun, gets up and shows the foolishness of the matter in five sentences. A vote is then taken and the thing is tabled. Now on one occasion, a Kanaka member who paddled over here from some barren rock or other out yonder in the ocean, some scalawag who wears nothing but a pair of socks and a plug hat when he's at home, or possibly is even more scantily arrayed in the popular malo, got up and gravely gave notice of a bill to authorize the construction of a suspension bridge from Oahu to Hawaii, a matter of 150 miles, by the way. He said that natives would prefer it to the inter-island schooners, and they wouldn't suffer from seasickness on it. Up came the honorables Ku and Kulawi, and Kau Kau, and Kiwawu, and a lot of other clacking geese, and harried and worried this notable internal improvement until some sensible person rose and choked them off by moving the previous question. Do not do an unjust thing now and imagine Kanaka legislatures do stupider things than other similar bodies. Rather blush to remember that once, when a Wisconsin legislature had the affixing of a penalty for the crime of arson under consideration, a member got up and seriously suggested that when a man committed the damning crime of arson, they ought to either hang him or make him marry the girl. To my mind, the suspension bridge man was a Solomon compared to this idiot. 
I shall have to stop at this point and finish this subject tomorrow. There is a villain over yonder who has been playing Get Out of the Wilderness on a flute ever since I sat down here tonight, sometimes fast and sometimes slow and always skipping the first note in the second bar, skipping it so uniformly that I have got to waiting and painfully looking out for it latterly. Human nature cannot stand this sort of torture. I wish his funeral would come off at half past eleven o'clock tomorrow and I had nothing to do. I would attend it. Explanatory. It has been six weeks since I touched a pen. In explanation and excuse, I offer the fact that I spent that time, with the exception of one week, on the island of Maui. I only got back yesterday. I never spent so pleasant a month before, or bade any place goodbye so regretfully. I doubt if there is a mean person there from the homeliest man on the island down to the oldest. I went to Maui to stay a week and remain five. I had a jolly time. I would not have fooled away any of it writing letters under any consideration whatever. It will be five or six weeks before I write again. I sail for the island of Hawaii tomorrow, and my Maui notes will not be written until I come back. Mark Twain. Mark Twain.